After a 20-year marketing career at Procter & Gamble, Nokia, Heineken, and Absolute Vodka, Abdel Aziz realized he wanted to do more, and he became obsessed with business as a force for good. He is now the founder and chief purpose officer of Conspiracy of Love, a think tank and idea incubator that helps advise Fortune 500 companies that you likely know, Adidas, Facebook, Levi's, Microsoft, to do well by doing good. He has helped companies around the world define their purpose and design purpose-driven strategies to grow their business and make a positive impact, and frankly, to re-energize their employees. I've known Afdel for a couple years now. I met him at a conference, and I'm so excited about this conversation because whenever I hear from him, I feel inspired, and I can't wait for you to feel inspired too. How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child lead a movement? Hello, Greta, anyone. And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make-or-break moments that make social impact so impactful. Hey! Hey, Rebecca, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good, thank you. We're in the middle of buying a house. Congratulations! You're talking to the wife of a realtor, so I understand. Oh my God. (laughs) How are you? I'm good, how are you? It's good to see your face again. As good as your face again, it's been years, I think, yeah. you know. Um, how's it going? Good. It's going good. How are you? Yeah. It's a beautiful day in Venice Beach in California in Los Angeles. Mm, that's a good place to start because I wanted to ask you, you moved from New York, didn't you? Yes, I did. I feel like New York is the polar opposite to LA. It is. And, you know, to give you some context, I was born in Sri Lanka, which is a very beautiful tropical island. It kind of looks like the painting behind me, even though this is of a beach in Kerala in India, but it reminds me of Sri Lanka, so I keep it up there. I spent the first kind of 20 years of my life there, and then I moved to London and New York, and then I had 20 winters in a row, and I think my body just went, no, enough, enough winters. Um, and I've been to Edmonton in the winter, by the way, so I know how, how hardcore that is. And so when my, my book came out, Good as a New Cool, and my consultancy started to take off, I made a, a deal with my wife. I promised her that if it was successful, that we could move to Southern California. And fortunately, it did. And fortunately, she agreed, which is why we're here now. And do you like it? Do you like Southern California? The I love it. I love it. I'm looking at my, my studio here. I can see palm trees and bougainvillea and there's like hummingbirds and butterflies it's kind of idyllic we talked a couple weeks ago when we had talked we talked a little bit about intuition yes moved to new york to la talked about following your intuition on good is the new cool Mm -hmm. how have you found sort of walking down your social purpose journey how has intuition sort of played a little bit of a role for you um it's a really great question i think i you know when i i spent 20 years in corporate life and I had a, I was following my passion of really of music and pop culture. Mm-hmm. That was what really gave me a lot of energy and excitement. And then what happened was I started to lose excitement about it because I'd done so much at that. I, I felt very jaded. It's a very privileged position to have, by the way. I realized I had to go and find out what inspired me. And I used my intuition to go find that. You know, so in the very beginning, when we started writing Good as a New Cool, myself and, and Bobby, my co-author, copy of the book here. So we started writing it in 20, 2011. And at that point, it was just, we we're both in the same place. And we just said, who is inspiring us? That was the question. And we followed our intuition to just pick up the phone and call people who were doing inspiring things in business and nonprofits and arts and culture. Following that intuition led to us writing the book, which came out in 2016. And the reaction to the book, this is, you know, Donald Trump gets elected three weeks after the book comes out. And so the title, Good is the New Cool, I remember we talked about it and we said, this is the worst titled book in the history of books. We started to get a lot of response from people who were reading the book inside companies who said, this is a really powerful book for me right now. And so that led to, I guess, the second intuitive jump, which is to quit my job at Absolute Vodka. I was there for five years. And and, and kind of decide to just go and 
devote myself full time to the idea of business as a force for good. And actually, since then, a, a lot of what has happened has been, I'm not sure if, if intuition has been the right word, but it's been the universe reaching out to me to say, we see you and how about this, right? So I'll give you an example. I'm now a professional keynote speaker. This is how you and I met when I spoke at the gathering conference mm-hmm. several years ago. Um, when the book came out, I had zero intention of being a keynote speaker. I did a little TEDx talk, TEDx Bushwick. It was so bad now looking back at it that I actually asked them to take it down because I was like <laughs> nervous and sweating and it wasn't a good talk. But this wonderful woman, Nadia Larinci, who is now my speaking agent and business partner, mm-hmm. saw that talk and said, I think you could be a professional speaker. Three months later, somebody was handing me a check for speaking on stage for 45 minutes. And I was like, huh, I think I can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe in that situation, I was the beneficiary of somebody else's intuition, mm-hmm. not mine. But everything since then has really flowed from that. The book led to the speaking. The speaking led to the consultancy, Conspiracy of Love. Speaking led to Forbes asking me to write for them, which I, I love. I love being a journalist. It's led to the Good as a New Equal conferences, the podcasts. All of it has kind of come from that. So I, I think I do owe a lot to intuition as being a key driver on my journey as well. Mm-hmm. When you think about sort of, you were talking about feeling jaded. And um, I resonate with that because I think a lot of people who end up in the purpose space, whether it's fundraising and then not-for-profit or it's from the brand and marketing side, which you talk about a lot, how people often who are in marketing feel jaded about what they're selling and um, its greater purpose. When you were feeling that way, what was it that you were feeling jaded about? I think there's a couple of layers to it. One is when you, especially when you have kids, I think that's really when you realize that you want to leave a good legacy behind. Mm. You know, and I think that's where I have a six-year-old son. And when it came time to go on business trips and things like that, I was like, what do you do? And then I tried to explain it. It felt so uninspiring. It's like I'm helping contribute to third quarter profitability of sales of vodka. And and I didn't want to leave that legacy behind. You know, I didn't want that legacy to be, I just, you know, help people buy more stuff. Mm. And so that was kind of part of it. And again, I, I wanted to remind you, like, I wasn't doing a boring job. I wasn't, you know, selling cardboard boxes. No hating on cardboard box salespeople. But <laughs> I was doing Coachella and uh, partnerships with Lady Gaga and Dead Mouse. And from the outside looking in, you would look at it and go, that's super glamorous. That's super, you know, cool. But I'd be sitting there backstage at a concert or a festival going, I don't want to be here. I don't care about this anymore. And hmm. I realized that you have to find a new source of passion. I think the other word I'd use, you know, as being a good indicator along with intuition is passion. I, I realized now in hindsight, I was a brown kid from Sri Lanka who loved music and pop culture. I would get my mom to bring me copies of Rolling Stone magazine and Spin magazine. When all the other kids were saying, can you bring me back chocolate? I was like, no, bring me the New Musical Express and Melody Maker, you know? And I would devour pop culture and, and that passion for pop culture and music made me become very good at my job. You know, whether I was at Nokia or Heineken or Absolute Vodka, being able to be a, an aficionado of music, being able to sit down and talk to music managers and, you know, and just be able to hang in that space and navigate that, it kept me going. But a strange thing happened that when your passion becomes your job, it can also make you fall out of love with your passion. Um, I used to, I think it was only last year or the year before that it took me a while where I just went and, you know, bought a ticket to a concert as just a regular person, not, hey, can you put me on the VIP list? Hey, can you get me backstage and, you know, whatever. It's just like, I was going to buy a ticket and go sit in the seat. And I hadn't done that for maybe 15, 20 years. Uh, So it took me a while to regain my passion for music again because I had been so burnt out by it. I think discovering a new passion of this topic of business is a force for good. Kind of connected you back to the passion yeah. of pop culture. Mm. Uh, well, actually, it, it gave me a new, a, new, a new passion to focus on, the passion that I don't know everything about it. I'm still new to this. Um, I haven't been working in nonprofits for 20 years, you know, so there's still an element of, of learning that I like about it. Um, the space itself is evolving so fast. 
-hmm. I mean, here we are, you know, two weeks after the protests for George Floyd started. And to, just today, there have been earth shattering moves with major corporations happening. And so I don't think I'm going to run out of steam about it for hopefully another 20 years, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to find that passion. And, you know, when we talk about passion in our work, we said, we say, you know, it's not about like passion, like I like traveling or singing or, you know, whatever, being a foodie. Mm -hmm. It's, it is, what are those things that make you passionate as a, as a, as a citizen, as a human being, right? What gets you mad? What breaks your heart? What makes you just want to get up in the morning and like do something about it? Finding that thing where solving that problem can give you a lot of meaning um, is, is a really good clue. You say money follows meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do it right, yeah. it, you are, you, you can do stuff, which still gives you the same level of success, but also gives you a lot of meaning as well. Hmm. Interesting. And we're coming off of, you're right. We're coming off of protests and a really difficult time. I mean, I've learned a lot and I often look like we're in Canada. I often look to the States because the environment is more polarizing in the States and it's interesting mm -hmm. to see the purpose narrative change and evolve. What do you feel like you've learned and seen over the last couple weeks when it comes to the purpose space and just how companies are being tasked to do things differently? And for me, it's accountability and maybe for you, it's the same or it's something else. Things are happening so fast that it's difficult to kind of almost process, right? I mean, just today, uh, I just want to talk, I was looking at some of the stories I've been posting about, right? Here, here's just three random stories. Apple announces $100 million racial justice initiative. Amen. Starbucks is under fire for not allowing, for not allowing Black Lives Matter t-shirts to be worn by staff, even though they're fine with like pride pins being worn by staff, mm. getting called out on it. Adidas is having a major issue with internal Black employees protesting the lack of diversity and inclusion. Mm. And they just announced they're going to make commitments of, of hiring 30% of every single level. NASCAR just said they're not going to allow the Confederate flag at any of their events, wow. which is just like, it just <laughs> blows my mind. So uh, that's just the last 48 hours, right? Yeah. This is amazing to see in some respects, this amount of change on this particular topic, whatever you want to call this topic, whether it's uh, racial justice, diversity, inclusion, representation. Just on that topic, there have been um, incredible moves. My hope is that these translate to lasting structural change because you, we have to start having some very hard conversations about getting past the symbolism and the kind of mm. posturing into real conversations, right? And one of the big things that we are getting calls from from our clients right now who represent Fortune 500 companies is, how do we navigate this path in a way that is meaningful and authentic and just true? Because it's such a minefield out there at the moment. If you say nothing, silence is violence, right? You will get judged for your lack of saying something. If you say something, you will also be judged on your actions up to now. Mm -hmm. Where are your black board members? Where are your black C-suite executives? Where are your, mm -hmm. where's your representation throughout the organization, right? You will get called out for past mistakes. Look at all the editors getting fired from, uh, what is it, uh, Bon Appetit magazine or mm -hmm. Refinery29 or Reformation and these fashion brands coming out. So you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, but you have to do something. Mm. You have to start making meaningful change because people are holding you to account now mm -hmm. in a way that has never been seen before. And, and I, I, for one, I'm, I'm really happy about that. By the way, it's also forced me to confront my own privilege in this. Yeah. You know? And I, I never, I've never thought about it in this way. I've always put myself into the category of brown kid from Sri Lanka who mm -hmm. gets treated. Oftentimes I'm the only person of color in a room mm. that I'd walk into. Yeah. But I, I, I realize now that my South Asian-ness has given me a level of privilege, which my African-American colleagues never had. Mm -hmm. It allowed me to code switch more easily, mm -hmm. right? It, and it allowed me also, I think, this myth of like the model minority say, oh, no, those minorities, they're good, they're educated, they're, you know, they're, they're easy to deal with. Whatever that is, I'm grappling with my own complicitness. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking back at 20 years and going, were there moments where I made decisions that now in hindsight, I realize 
how um, complicit I was in supporting this this institutional mm. you know, system of discrimination. So it's a really profound time to be thinking about all of this, you know, but I, I hope that what everybody will do is number one, do the work themselves mm-hmm. to examine their their own position, you know, and 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 privilege. Um to to shine a light on those people who are doing amazing work. I think that's the simplest thing you can do. While you work this out, just go, here's people doing amazing things and use your platform, use your megaphone to like point people in the direction of of those people doing great work on the ground. Mm -hmm. And three, now comes the hard bit, which is we need to talk about dismantling some of these systems, just like the Minneapolis Police Department announced they were dismantling the police department, which that that is an act of moral imagination, right? That's mm-hmm. an act of moral imagination. Go, people are like, hang on, we can do that. Like, we can just take it apart and put it back together again, and have it focused on public safety and 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 staff it the right way, and have people who aren't just people with a gun, but who are experts in drug addiction and mental health counseling and rape counseling, and and not have to put police in a situation where they're um, dealing with every simple problem the same way, um, which is an unfair burden on them. And, and so that's what I mean. Like we are having profound conversations and transformative shifts that change reality, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that same conversation is going on inside corporations where we're thinking about, well, hang on a second. If this, um, the system doesn't work for everybody. Is it the right system that we have? You know, and I'll tell you about one thing which I've, I've been I've been thinking a lot and writing about as well as a as a marketer, um, which is the myth of the general market. Mm. And I don't know if you've come across this, but tell me more. I uh, so in two thousand and seven, I moved from London to the United States. I got a job at Heineken, and um, Heineken's demographic breakdown is uh, 25% African-American, 25% Hispanic, and 50% general market. I guess Anglo-Caucasian would be another way to talk about it, right? So this is a brand which has a big, loyal following amongst people of color. Mm -hmm. And so I get asked to do multicultural marketing. Mm. And it's the first time I've had to wrap my head around this, right? So in previously... When I was in London, I had regional or global roles or whatever else. And so I was like, okay, this is how we market in Italy versus Brazil. Okay, I, I get that. But this is one market and you're telling me to treat different consumers differently because of cultural nuance. Mm. Okay, all right. I, I think I understand that. Let me wrap my head around that. Mm. By the way, this is seen as a huge advance from what was there before, which was, hey, there's no differentiation. It's just a universal message. Take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Right. So everybody felt like, oh, this is a good move forward. Um, but then you get into the nitty gritty of it. What is the budgets you allocate to these non-general market populations? Oh, well, they're not 25% of the overall budget, but 25% of the volume is coming from them. Shouldn't you give them the same amount of money? Like, no, no, no. You see, our general market communications cover them as well you know it's kind of a universal message okay all right Mm. so then you realize that these communities which have contributed so much to the financial profitability of this brand are not getting treated the same way or getting investment the same way Mm -hmm. as the general market does Mm -hmm. i mean and when you talk about brands and how they influence culture you're also i mean we talk about cultural appropriation a lot it's like, are you giving the same level of attention, the same level oh. of, yeah. By the way, then you get into the conversation about if you're a brand like an Adidas or a Nike, which is built off the backs of black culture, if you're working with Kanye and Beyonce and Pharrell and Snoop Dogg, and you're saying, we love working with these celebrities, but we're not going to invest in those communities that the celebrities come from in the same way that we're using their music and their art and their culture to help sell you sneakers or vodka or beer, mm. that's a whole other different level of exploitation, right? But now here comes the, here comes the bit which now I, I'm just like, we need to explode the myth of the general market. 
when you look at the demographics of America today, if you are a brand that caters to a millennial and younger audience, if you are a brand that looks, that is majority based in urban centers like cities, America is already a majority minority country in those places and those demographics, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's 2040s when America becomes majority minority across all demographics. But if you're a young youth culture focused brand, the people buying your products by and large in those cities, the majority of them are young black and brown people. They're the general market now. Mm. But yet, if you look at the financial investment and where it's going, it's still stuck in this outdated thing of, oh no, let's carve out a little bit of budget for them and go, hey yo, be happy with this. Oh, we donated this much to HBCUs. Oh, here, hey, listen, here's a, here's a, you know, a charity donation that we gave, or, or here's a cool collaboration we did with an artist. Mm -hmm. So, in the field that I know, which is marketing and consumers and and branding, I'm beginning to realize this is one of those structures that need to be dismantled. The myth of the general market, and how we talk to different consumers. It has ghettoized some consumers. By the way, we're not even talking about the impact this has had on young black and brown professionals inside those companies. That's another yeah. whole level of pain where my Bobby, who I work with and, and who is African-American, explained it to me once. He said, those guys are doing two jobs. Mm -hmm. The minute they walk in the door, they're doing two jobs. Mm -hmm. They're doing the job that is on their business card. They're the you know, VP of blah, blah, blah but they are also doing a whole other job, which is standing up with their entire race slash culture slash whatever else and having to advocate and explain and represent at the same time as not being seen as somebody who is quote unquote difficult or having, you know, causing issues. And it's such a tightrope mm -hmm. to walk um, and such a burden to have. Um, as like a woman of color myself, as a black woman, um, I was sharing a couple of weeks ago and what we were talking about is the risk that you take every time you bring something up. Mm -hmm. Every time that you're flagging an issue, you're trying to think, is it worth it? Is it going to make enough of a difference that it's worth me taking a career risk on? And what's the influence it's going to create? And do I want to be the person putting my hand up or is it my role to create influence and to reach out to other people that have the influence to make the changes? And it's a, it's a huge, it's a burden. It's a yeah. huge burden to bear. And I mean, when you're talking about corporate purpose and how companies live with purpose, I mean, you're taking it to a whole new level. And maybe that's, maybe that is the outcome of this conversation in this movement is moving to a place where that acknowledgement exists, not only as an acknowledgement, but as a value. Not just a value as, as action, mm. as structural change, you know, as, as not just lip service, as actual systems you know, this is going to sound like a weird analogy, but think about sustainability, mm -hmm. right? As a system mm -hmm. that works within companies, right? Think about where it was 15, 20 years ago mm -hmm. when it was still kind of a new idea. Oh, we need to think about how we make our products and, you know, what, what energy we use to make them. And, and now think about sustainability today within fortune 500 companies and how much science and rigor and you know process there is against measuring it measuring the impact of a company's carbon footprint measuring mm. you know it's it's uh you know emissions or whatever it is i feel like this conversation about diversity and inclusion needs to evolve to that level of sophistication mm -hmm. because right now we're at the very beginning almost I and mean, and by the way this is not to knock the work of people who've been doing this work for decades. Mm -hmm. I want to give props for them. I, we know them. We think what they've been doing is amazing. Mm -hmm. But sadly, even with all that work, this conversation is still so fresh and new and kind Tragic. of like surprising. Mm -hmm. and people are like, oh, there's a problem in our company? Yeah, there's a problem in your company. If you talk to your black and brown employees, they would have told you, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. So it's still at that nascent level of being treated as a topic, mm. you know, without, you know, giving it the full weight that it deserves. And again, not to knock chief diversity officers, not to knock people mm -hmm. who are working on all that stuff as well. But the fault is not theirs. The fault is that the system, just like it did with sustainability, kind of ghettoized them and said, oh, this is, uh, this, is, this is niche. This is non-core to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and never gave them the resources, never gave them the attention that it deserves. And what has just happened in the last two weeks is that suddenly the window of discourse has shifted. And now this conversation is front and center and getting the weight it deserves. And people are, um, people are overwhelmed by it. You know, I think that's where the phone calls we're getting are, are, are either from people who are, um, well, the phone calls we're getting is that inside these companies, there is a debate going on with a lot of pain and anger, mm-hmm. right? There is pain being expressed by those black and brown employees who are saying, this is what we've been telling you for decades, you just never listened. There is a tremendous amount of guilt being felt by their, let's call them Anglo colleagues, mm-hmm. who are suddenly having to confront all their complicitness in this and going, oh my God, I don't like this, this feeling. Let's do something to fix it. Mm-hmm. And as somebody very wisely pointed out, you can't fix 400 years of racial injustice in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Like you can't suddenly go, okay, here we go write a check there and put this policy into place and we're all good, right? Everybody good? Let's move on, right? So I feel like we're at the beginning of a journey that is long overdue to have inside companies. Um, It's going to be messy. It's going to be painful to deal with it, but we need to because what's on the other side, and this is the bit that I also like talk about a lot when when we we, uh, have these conversations is, The data is now in that the more diverse and representative your company is, the more competitive it is, the more innovative it is. Um, This is the Harvard Business Review. This is all these companies. And I look at this and go, yeah, duh. Of course, if you have, if your job as a brand or a company is to sell to as many people as possible, then shouldn't you have people inside the company who reflect the world you are selling to, right? And I'm not just talking about cognitive diversity, which is now my new favorite buzzword to hate on. Cognitive diversity, I think, should be classified the same as all lives matter, right? I agree. Yes, it's a bullshit phrase, right? It's like, (laughs) oh, but we have cognitive diversity. No, have actual diversity because that's better than pretending that cognitive diversity is you get the same. If you have 12 white men, by the way, who are in your board positions, that's not cognitive diversity. (laughs) That's not true cognitive diversity. That's cognitive diversity within white men, right? My favorite was, um, my favorite was diversity is not just marginalized folks. What about the stay at home mom? I'm like, okay. But what about the marginalized folks? <laughs> like, yeah, you see why the analogy to all lives matter is so appropriate. It's like, it's the all lives matter of corporate mm-hmm. jargon. Mm-hmm. Oh, but what about these guys? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying that they're not important. I'm saying these folks are more important. Mm-hmm. I've been struggling to find the right analogy to talk about. It's like, a friend of mine told me this. is like, all lives matter is... Like if you imagine if you're in a town and there is a building that's burning, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, that building is burning. Um, yeah, but all buildings could Not burn. Yeah, I know, but that's the one that's on fire. So we have to go put that fire out first and then deal with everything else. We can't just say, yeah, all buildings matter. And then that allows us to just forget about the building that is on fire as well. So I feel like this conversation about, I feel like there's a beginning of this conversation about cognitive diversity. Mm. But what I'm going is that when you have actual diversity in your company, it helps you to spot opportunities, um, which you may not have seen before. Mm-hmm. My favorite example is, is Nike and all the work it's doing around Muslim women, mm-hmm. right? It has put out the Nike pro hijab for Muslim women. It's put out the Nike victory suit, which is a modest swimwear thing. There's been half a billion Muslim women on this planet for the last 50 years. If I came to you and said, hey, Nike, I've got this brand new market of half a billion people that you should talk to, do you want to know about them? They'd be like, yes, yeah. they've been there all along. Mm. You didn't talk to them because there weren't enough of them in your leadership teams mm. or in positions of power in your company. There's a multi, multi-billion dollar opportunity that you have left on the table mm-hmm. because you didn't have the right diversity and representation inside your company. And I think you just so made a key account. point. It's that regardless of where you're at in your journey, you have something to apologize for. As an, as an organization, regardless if you're leading. And I think when, and it's same as you and I talking about our own biases, your reflection is very similar to mine, where I've said, I am in a position of, of privilege as well. I 
yes, I am the daughter of a first generation immigrant, but English was my first language. I do not have an accent. I went to university here. I, I show up with a lot of privilege that others don't. I have biases. I have things to apologize for. And regardless of what level of innovation inclusiveness that you have to be proud for, proud yeah. of, yeah. you're at a point now, regardless yeah. of the company, you have something yeah. to say, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, 100% agree. Sorry, my son is running around there with a spray can. I just want to make sure he's not destroying something here. Um, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's, that's uh, you're right. In addition to listening and diverting your resources to support other marginalized voices, I think, yeah, stop by apologizing. Just saying, you know what? I realized that I may have had some, if you, if you are in that position, I may have had some level of privilege and I apologize for that. Mm -hmm. And that's the beginning of having that journey, whether you're in an individual or a corporation, I think starting at that point is just a good, healthy step as well. You know? Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as discussions become more and more polarizing, as politics becomes more and more polarizing and corporations are standing on either side, I think we're at an interesting point where it's more about the influence and what kind of influence you're creating to get to a point where learning is possible where learning can happen and conversations can exist. And I'm curious because, of course, you're not just an author. You also have Conspiracy of Love, which is a consulting company, social purpose consulting company. When, you, when I think of social purpose on my end, I was given advice very early on that a large part of this role of working on corporate social purpose is about influence and it's about understanding people's motivations, whether it's your employee base, I mean, you're looking at it often from the outside in. How does influence play a role for you? Um, it's a hard okay, question. So, <laughs> it's a, a multi-part question, I think. Mm -hmm. So I'll start on the, the more abstract level, you know, and then I'll talk about the personal side of things, right? So when I'm having this conversation about business as a force for good, I try to have it on a multi-dimensional conversation, right? Um, because it's a complex topic. Mm -hmm. um, I actually start with, if it's a business, I start with profitability, mm -hmm. right? I, I start with the fact that these are businesses, they're not charities, right? So they are driven by ROI. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, right now, all the data is in to show how doing good is good for your business. I wrote an article, I got fed up with people asking me, and I wrote an article called on Forbes called I can't remember what it's called, uh, but um, the business case for purpose, all the data you're looking for. <laughs> and so just Google that, you can well, find like... <laughs> our link to it. It's just every single piece of data from Kantar, Harvard Business Review, Edelman, like everything that shows you that doing good is good for business, whether it's consumers, employees, or investors as well. Purpose-driven businesses have more loyal consumers, pay more money, who advocate for you, have employees who stay longer, reduce turnover, work harder, are more engaged, more motivated, attract investors who are more patient and who, have, who, who are open to you having social impact alongside financial return. Mm -hmm. So that's like the business part of it. Um, and then I also talk to them about a story, you know, and I think that maybe because I am a storyteller at heart, I always say strategy is story, mm -hmm. right? Strategy is a story that a business can tell about itself in a way that makes sense for its customers, for its employees, for its stakeholders to say, yeah, this is, this is why this business exists and this is the story it's told about ourselves. And so explaining that story in a way which shows that you are not only on the right side of history, right? You, you're making moral um, kind of commitments and moral actions to back up those commitments. Like we've seen in the last 48 hours, companies like Apple and Nike do, um, means that this is wonderful phrase um you're getting not just share of mind but share of heart right i want to credit uh this wonderful woman fernanda romano who we interviewed in good as a new cool she's now the cmo of um alpagadas which is the company that owns havianas the flip-flop she said that a couple of weeks ago i was like that's it that's brilliant that's brilliant you need to have share of heart right mm -hmm. and so I, I think in this new era I'm able to explain to, to these leaders that we talk to, the CEOs and CMOs, like this is why this is super important um, for longevity as well. Um, but then it is about the personal, right? I think that's where 
organize it, company corporations are made of people. Mm-hmm. They're not robots. They're made of their organisms made of people. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing is that unfortunately corporations have turned into places where it's easy to absolve yourself of responsibility. Hmm. Right? They're, by that. Oh, we're all working to this quarterly profit goal, right? That's where the where, you know, um, we were all focused on, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, um, well, we need to hit that. We might need to fire a bunch of people. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, in order to make that, we might need to just cut corners on this supplier and get like substandard, you know, materials to use in this or make it in a way that's not safe for people. Oh yeah, it's fine. Um, we need to maybe do some shady financial accounting practices, by the way, it's I'm going to make it public. It's just business, right? It's not, it's business. It's not personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, the next biggest corporate scandals that are going to erupt are going to be around shady financial practices, shady accounting practices. Hmm. Interesting. It's going to be huge. And hmm. seeing the ripples start now. From COVID? Um, pardon me? From COVID specifically? Or? Uh, no, this is pre-COVID. Hmm. There, I won't say more, but just check in with me in 18 months and see. But I will tell you that I think that there's an accounting scandal unfolding that will be as big as the mortgage crisis in 2008. That, and I hope it isn't, but I think it's gonna hit companies as hard. Hmm. Anyway, doom and gloom is I feel like you just glazed over that. Like, what do you mean by that? Like there's gonna, PS hit me up in 18 months, economies might crash, like. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you intuitively, I think, in the list of things companies are gonna be scrutinized for, a very boring but essential part of it is how they represent their profitability and how they represent money Uh, and i think there are more examples of shady stuff going on in major companies than you think and i think those companies are going to have a come to jesus moment this is abdel said 2020 right abdel said um but to get back to my thesis there's a wonderful documentary by the way called the corporation i highly recommend you watch it and, and your your viewers watch it it talks about how corporations have suddenly taken on the attributes of a human being, right? Yeah. They have all the rights of human beings, but they're actually superhuman because they can't go to jail. Mm-hmm. They can't die. Like there's, there's no limits. Mm-hmm. And so this has led to the people inside those corporations and um, being able to absolve themselves. Because it's not me who's doing the firing. It's the corporation who's doing the firing. Mm-hmm. It's not me who made the decision to let make this stuff. Oh, it's the corporation to do it. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. It's the absolution of guilt, mm. right? But I think what's really interesting is that when these same companies, when the people inside those companies actually have a crisis of conscience and they're actually like, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't be part of this system. I need to change things from inside the system. Mm-hmm. That's what's really powerful. That's what led to 3,000 B Corps. Right. Ben and Jerry's, Seventh Generation, Patagonia, WeTransfer joined them yesterday. I wrote about it in Forbes. It, it's what led to, I don't know if you saw the business roundtable, um, 181 companies saying, we want to focus on all stakeholders, not just our um, you know, shareholders. Long way to go in terms of actually becoming you know, um, better, but it's a huge uh, stake in the ground to put. So something is happening inside the um, organisms of corporations, which are now moving some of them from being amoral to being moral. Mm-hmm. And my job is to go and help those people, mm-hmm. to inspire them, to give them the data, to give them the strategy, to give them the, the frameworks and structures to move them along that curve. Mm-hmm. Because on the other side of that curve is profitability. And, and longevity and durability and success as well. And the other side of that, of course, is the leaders themselves. I think I've always really appreciated and enjoyed the part about understanding who leadership is and how they contribute to social purpose. And I think it's important because purpose-driven leaders are often people who really know themselves and understand the impact that they want to make. And I think that's why purpose-driven companies are so successful is because the leaders really understand the feedback loop of purpose. They understand that being purpose-driven and wanting to do things for community to create impact, to create system-wide change, it not only allows them to be innovative, but it allows them to 
participate in evolving the market. And as a result, those companies are more agile. Mm. And so I'm wondering if maybe that is sort of the upswing, as you say, purpose continues to grow and change and evolve all the time. That with that, um, I'm hoping that we're kind of seeing the other side of the feedback loop on it. You know, this is the topic. I'm, I'm writing a couple of follow-up follow up books, The Good is a New Cool. Um, one is The Principles of Purpose, which is how to operationalize purpose, right? And we, we talked about this before. The Good is a New Cool is how to create a purpose-driven brand. The Principles of Purpose is how to create a purpose-driven company, right? So it's, it's based on analyzing what we call purpose Jedis, companies who are just really good at this and saying, here's what you can distill from them into your company as well. Mm-hmm. The third book is actually the one that's maybe closest to my heart, which is, uh, it's called GPS to Purpose. I'm writing it with you know, a wonderful man called True Pettigrew who mm-hmm. came up with this GPS methodology. And it's about personal purpose. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's about individuals, including those individuals who are maybe leaders in companies or employees. Because I think there's something really interesting going on there. Um, yeah. this, this data point, which... Uh, which fascinated me is that only 13% of people say that they're happy and engaged at work. Mm-hmm. And you go, that's a remarkably sl- small percentage of people, right? Mm-hmm. I think 87% of people aren't. Mm-hmm. So then you start to pull at that thread and you look at what motivates those 13% and it is autonomy, the ability to do self-directed work, mastery, being really good at what they do and purpose, having knowing that their work matters, that there is something bigger than the profit goal. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of people around the world get to that point in their careers where they're like, I've got a pretty good title, I'm making enough money, but there's something missing. Mm -hmm. There is something empty inside of me. And I don't know what that is because by all accounts, I've made it. Like I'm the SVP of blah, 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 you know, and, and I've made it. And, um, I think that is what is making a lot of people realize that instead of trying to find that meaning outside of work by joining a nonprofit or volunteering in the community, yes. which are all wonderful things to do, they're like, wait a minute, can I do that in my job? Can I smuggle purpose into what I'm doing? And then there's a word for it, which is a, being a social entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where there is a lot of people now having this debate where they're saying, I, I don't want to choose. I don't want to choose between purpose and a paycheck. I want to have both. Mm -hmm. And those companies who are smart enough to understand it and are creating space for people to do it are those purpose Jedi companies. They are the Teslas and the Patagonias and, um, you know, the the Unilevers of the world who are saying, yeah, we're going to give you a great salary. We're going to give you benefits, but we're going to go change the world in a positive way. And I know it seems facile to say you can do that through selling soap. Mm-hmm. All right, or through selling uh, mayonnaise or something like that, but it is possible. And as long as the companies do it in a genuine, meaningful way and don't exploit that desire, mm-hmm. say, yeah, yeah, we're going to change the world. We're going to treat you like shit. And then, you know, or we're, like, we're saving the world. Mm-hmm. Pardon me? Or we're going to lose focus and we're going to get lost, right? We have yeah. something and how do you keep going with what's working and, and not lose the purpose that it was really born of. 100%, 100%. It's interesting too when you were talking about sort of those those people who are really successful and they've come into their own and, you know, by all accounts, I have the job, I have the house, I have the family, everything should be great and I'm not happy. And um, something I often think about is success versus fulfillment. And mm. um, for some people, I think often a lot of people go through a journey where they say, okay, I've, I'm successful. And then they say, wait, success without fulfillment, like what what am I even working towards? Mm. And as you, as you were speaking, and then you talked about coming out of absolute and moving into this journey, it's, there sounds like there's some parallels even for you there, right? Like you said, you're a little jaded. I completely resonate with this. Um, and then you found purpose and doing purpose-driven work yourself. Um, for you, I guess, what's the marriage between fulfillment and success as you've gone down this path to good as the new cool and the speaking engagements and the consulting and yeah i think it's a i think i've been i've been incredibly lucky to be able to be in a place where i can look after my family and 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 wake up every morning and do this kind of work as well Mm -hmm. um and my purpose in life is to help more people go on this path 
Like I want everybody to feel like how I feel and feel that sense of meaningfulness when I do. Mm-hmm. I think the, um, I think what's really clear to me now is even the type of fulfillment can change and be refined, right? And I think that's where half of my work is consultancy, which is being able to go into these companies and talk to people and help them figure stuff out. And there's a certain level of fulfillment I get from that. The other half is storytelling. Mm-hmm. It's very different to consultancy is. in the mode that I'm in. One is being strategic. The other one is being creative. Mm. And I realize I like the storytelling more. Or it brings me a, a deeper form of fulfillment, you know? And I think that's where I'm also realizing that the next 20 years of my life, I would like it to be driven by being more of a storyteller. You know, I, I think there's nothing more... I love than seeing somebody doing something incredible in real life. I think this is maybe why I like writing for Forbes so much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've written books of poetry and I've written books of fiction and nothing really connected the same way as when I looked at nonfiction after mm-hmm. real life and realized that was way more interesting. And, and my, my, uh, my joy comes from finding people who are doing incredible things and me going to them and going, I think what you're doing is incredible. And I want to help tell the world about what you're doing because you're inspiring. You've inspired me. And I want to use your story to help inspire other people. Just being in that channel of being the channel between those two things. I can do that all day, every day, for the rest of my life, you know? <laughs> um, so, or at least, I don't know, at least until the point where I go, actually, you know what? I've done enough of it that this isn't fulfilling anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to just think about it as also being purpose. We always say, this is one of the principles in the book, purpose is a journey, not a destination. It will change with time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I noticed, you can, you know, yeah. I noticed that you talk in 20 year increments a lot. <laughs> you think in 20 year increments a lot? I don't actually. I think maybe just because you're catching me at a moment where I've now had three years distance from the first 20 years of my life. Maybe I, I've, I've had enough. I have enough perspective to be able to look and go examine that. And, and maybe that's just, I'm now thinking about, okay, if I had to break it up for another 20 years, what would that look like as well? But no, I, I, I do think, I do think long-term though. I do think long-term. And I think it's important to do that um, as well, because if you, if you get stuck in the short term, then you can, you can very quickly find yourself in the place where you're just being reactive and, and you're not able to, um, really fulfill the vision of your life that you want to have as well. Hmm. Yeah. When you wrote Good is the New Cool, book one, did you know there was going to be a second book? I knew that I wanted my life to be a series of creative projects. Okay. The deal that I made with myself when I was younger, when was I wanted to be a writer, right? I did a degree in English literature. Mm, cool. I um, did a master's in media and communications. And then I realized nobody in the UK wanted to give a brown kid from Sri Lanka a work permit to stay and be a writer or be a journalist or whatever else. So I pivoted to marketing. You know, I pivoted to, I had a summer internship at Procter & Gamble and I did it and I was like, oh, I kind of like it. This is a kind of storytelling, you know, it's it's a discipline that I enjoy and I'm passionate about. And the deal I made with myself was I will get paid by doing this job, but the money will then allow me to do a series of creative projects. Mm. Um, and um, it was an increasing uh, levels of complexity. So the first book I wrote was a book of poetry called China Bay Blues. Mm. Poetry is relatively easy to write because it's a series of discrete, shorter pieces, right? The second book was called Strange Fruit. It was a fiction book. And that was the most difficult, torturous thing to write. It took me 10 years and it was just, a, it wasn't very good. And by the end of it, I was just like, oh, but it, it taught me how to write, right? Uh, when you're writing a full-length novel, it taught me how to write. So when Good is a New Cool came about, I didn't have any fear. I was like, I've written a, you know, whatever, 80,000, 100,000 word novel before. Like writing a book that's, you know, 21 stories of people, piece of cake. Done. <laughs> Done. And, and, and that's where I realized, like, uh, like what I was saying before, like nonfiction is my lane. Now, Bobby and I talk a lot about narrative nonfiction, using the techniques of fiction to write about nonfiction, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I think very, very fulfilling. But now I think about other creative mediums. I'm like, okay, what would it be like to do a TV show? What would it be like to do a documentary film? 
what would it be like to do a feature film? Each of those things I feel like is a exponentially more complicated than the next as a creative act. So I think that's where I want to go next is to start to figure out how to do those things and, and really challenge the storyteller in me mm. to become better and better at telling stories in a more and more complex medium, mm. which means doing less of the thing which I know I can do, which is being a consultant and, and kind of navigating and trying to figure out a path where I can, I can, I can pivot to that, I think, mm. at a certain point as well. Mm. And for you with the second book, I'm not going to ask you what does success look like, but I'm going to ask you what does fulfillment look like? Um, that's a really good question. I think yeah, it's very simple. You know, I, I don't think about the macro uh, impact of the book because it's, it's really hard to do that. Mm-hmm. Books go out into the world and, you know, you know 15,000 people have read Good as a New Cool book one. I don't know the cumulative impact of those 15,000 people. So all I can really find joy in is the, is the impact made on one person. Mm-hmm. And so I really love getting random Instagram posts or somebody emailing us, whatever, going, I'm reading your book and it's blowing my mind. I'm like, okay, that's enough. That one person whose life changed, and we've had people who quit their jobs and people who have started businesses because they read the book. I'm like, that's what makes me happy, knowing there's one person where something happened and it, it, it helped them think about their own purpose in life and change the course of their life in some way. That's, that's enough. It's also probably helped you guide what you want to write next, right? Like as you think about that third book and what's fulfilling there about is, it. Yeah, it, there is an, I'm realizing that's a trilogy of perp, about purpose. Mm-hmm. Book one is brand purpose, book two is corporate purpose, and book three is individual purpose. And I think they fit really neatly together, you know, and so that's also interesting thinking about it as, as not a discrete book, but as like a, a system or a structure that actually, if you put them all together, um, it has all the tools that corporations need to change the world. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's, a, that, that's a legacy worth leaving behind. Right. Mm-hmm. Aftel, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so grateful for your insights and your experience. Uh, also, just the chance to see your face again after so many years, <laughs> rather than talking on the phone. But um, thanks for your time. And I can't wait to hear all about the second and read the second book and the third yeah. book. Can't wait. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. It's nice to see you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Gosh, I'm so thankful for Aftel's time as he shares his insights. His books are amazing. Um, I don't know how many times I've shared them with colleagues and friends, but something interesting is that usually I don't get them back because they're just so good. You can find any of Aftel's books on Amazon or Indigo if you're in Canada. (laughs) If you enjoyed this conversation, then subscribe. Keep an eye out for new episodes every Tuesday morning. You're listening to Nuance of Impact, the podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.